Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. Great. Well, welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for being here. Uh, very excited today because we are here with Debbie Millman. And those of you who don't know Debbie Millman, she's a writer, educator, artist, brand consultant, and host of a podcast that is way more successful than this one called Design Matters. Just Debbie. give it time, Rob. Just give it time. Debbie, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you here. It's great to be with a, with such a legend and, and a legend who, um, not only a design legend, but a, but just a great thought leader about creativity. Thank you. Thank you. I've, uh, I've, I've, I've plowed through all of your books now, six. Six indeed. <laughs> They're amazing. And um, yeah, I just think uh, how you're writing about creativity uh, through the years and today is really amazing. Thank you very, very much. So that's good. So I, I, I want to start with a little anecdote. Okay. I go to this uh, salad place, I don't know, on, I don't know 50, 51st Street. Uh, I don't know what it's called, you know, chopped or just salad or, you know, tossed, uh, tossed, you know, <laughs> romaine holiday, whatever the hell, whatever the hell it was. Yes. But I go in there and it was like the most amazing experience. I mean, like the whole, the art direction was great. The, um, we'll call it the customer experience. Uh, just the way of the signage was great. The typefaces were well thought. And this wasn't the first time I'd been in one of these salad joints where the art direction was amazing and the design was amazing. And I've been to a number of them now. And it sort of just struck me as a question, are we in the midst of a design revolution right now? 20, what is it, 2017? Are we? I think we're in the middle of a cultural transformation in what democratized design can do. Mm. This gives me an enormous amount of hope about <laughs> the future of design and branding and advertising. So the fact that you see this little upstart salad joint with good branding and good design is heartwarming and kudos to them for seeing that a better designed environment and more aesthetic experience will help sales. Because ultimately, that's why people do it. But what's really exciting to me now about branding is how we're seeing the tenets of branding being used in non-commercial spaces. Ooh, that sounds juicy. So, Please, please, please expand. <laughs> Black Lives Matter. Mm. The pink pussy hat. Mm. The logo that was designed after the terrorism in France. People, the human species, are now creating ways to communicate using this discipline of branding, not in a way to make money, not in a way to increase margin, not in a way to get more followers, but specifically to connect other like-minded people and create this volumetric power in numbers that we have never seen before. Oh so God. branding has gone from a return on investment endeavor, a commercial endeavor in a way to communicate quality or consistency or provide some sort of cultural cachet to a profound manifestation of the human spirit. Okay, we're like three minutes into the podcast and it is just like juicy. That is great. <laughs> but isn't it exciting? Yeah, it's, it's 
phenomenal. So I think I, I just want to frame things up a little bit. You know, we've got our propaganda and our agenda here. The convention of branding, the convention yes. is that this is a uh, endeavor for profit. This is a capitalist uh, exercise. And what you're saying is that suddenly there's a disruption in the world that we are using the tools of branding to forward the human race. Yes, Yes. And so I've done a lot of research in the trajectory of branding mm. in our species. And and really, if, if you think about it, our brains underwent a major genetic transformation 50,000 years ago. What scientists call the... There. <laughs> I'm mean, old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> not, we're both not, not that old. But our brains underwent this major genetic mutation that resulted in the triune brain we have today. And that brain, that triune brain, three in one, the reptilian brain, what Scott Godin calls the, uh, what Seth Godin calls the lizard brain, the mammalian brain, the middle brain, what all ma- all the the part of the brain that all mammals share, and then the neocortex. About eighteen thousand years after this major genetic mutation, we started as a species to document our reality on the cave walls on the cave walls in Lascaux. Mm. About another 10,000 or so years after that, we started to array ourselves with makeup to make ourselves more beautiful in front of God. Mm. It wasn't for seductive purposes. It Mm. was for beautification to some larger power that we wanted to be able to identify with. Personal branding is like uh, an Egyptian thing. But then we had to create marks to signify what that belief was. Mm. And then we started to use it in our culture in about 1010 AD in the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf, and the, the word bronze shows up, which means to literally mark or destroy by fire. Hmm. Cattle ranchers use the word. They, <laughs> they, they appropriated that word to signify first with pine tar, then with hot iron brands, this notion of ownership. Ownership. I am identifying this as mine. Then fast forward to the advent of modern branding, the Trademarks Registration Act of the late 1800s, wherein brands had legal entitlement. You were legally, anybody that owned a brand was legally entitled to that ownership. And once you start looking at the trajectory of brands, and whether it be the Coca-Colas to the Pepsi-Colas to the Jamba Juice to Mm. the Starbucks, whatever it is, whatever that trajectory is, even the entities that are against branding, so the ad busters people, mm-hmm. the buy nothing people, the Starborgs, mm-hmm. the no logo contingent. Mm-hmm. They're all brands too, by the way. Yes, they are. They're all using the very tenets of branding that they so vocally, so grandly disdain. And so what the real fascinating thing for me is, well, why do we do this? If even the anti-branders are using the very tenets of branding, the constructs of mm-hmm. branding, that they find deplorable, why are we doing this? And I think it has become as evidenced now by the way that we are communicating via the pink pussy hat, Mm. via the Black Lives Matter hashtag. We are using these constructs to connect each other. And that by, by, is ultimately, way, I think, what brands on their best day do. Right. That, by the way, was an example of Debbiepedia. <laughs> Forget Wikipedia. That was a course in branding oh, wow. in about two minutes, people. Wouldn't it be great if I just had all of that and could tell everybody in the world how to feel ease with themselves and live a fulfilled life? <laughs> there you go. Uh, Debbiepedia, I, I want you to work on that. That's amazing. So 
Interesting. All right. So when you come back to the design revolution, it actually started millions of years ago with this neocortex. Thing. I believe that it did with the what what scientists call the the big brain bang and philosophers call the great leap forward. I far prefer that. The great leap forward wherein we started to use these constructs to be able to communicate and connect ourselves. Very interesting. Now, how do we tie this to this uh, phrase of the moment, the phrase that pays design thinking. So if we don't want to say the word disruption and seem like we're really hip or use the word narrative to seem really hip, we throw out design thinking. Well, what is design thinking? Creative problem solving. Mm. It's just a really nice way of saying creative problem solving. It's using a specific way of attacking, approaching a problem in an effort to provide the best possible human solution. So, all right. So I like that. That helps. So I just want to go to 1966-ish for a moment. Okay. I was five. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, uh, Thomas J. Watson at IBM, he sees Paul Rand's work. So this is a very left-brain business person. He sees Paul Rand and he says, hey, something has to happen here. Design and the international business machines, we're going to have an affair. So how how did that happen? And I ask you because you were a great historian of design because they were they were solving problems at IBM. What what do you think was the instinct to solve them in I don't know maybe a more artful way? So are you talking about the creation of the logo, or are you talking about the notion of humanizing this? business entity because IBM is still in, in what is it industrial business machines or uh, international. international business machines um, this where what what's interesting I think it's the, I think it's the humanizing I, yeah. I guess that's and it, I think I'm just trying to because your uh, your Debbiepedia branding um, is also there's something very human about that we're trying to make things it seems to me it's about creating a sense of It's what I would call a mutuality. Mm. So it is we have this product, we have this thing that we're selling, and we want you to understand what that is and maybe even entice you to buy it. Mm -hmm. And so it is that, that transfer of intent is what I call a mutuality. They want something, you want something, you both want that same thing to happen. And that is a mutuality. And design and branding and advertising all in many ways seek to provide that. Same thing with PR. There's Here's this bit of information we have. Here's this product we have. Here's this belief we have. Here is this intention we have that we would like for you to also believe and want. So I want, I want to come back to that because I was reading, you have a, a wonderful book called uh, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. With the world, world's worst title. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it is such a great book and uh, because it's a book about answers and the reason why the answers are so great from all these wonderful people is because you have amazing questions. I think that's what's really interesting about the dynamic of that book. As I was reading that, I don't know if I was reading the, the thing with Milton Glaser or whatever, whatever the interview was that struck me this morning. I wanted to ask you this question, which you're kind of hitting on, which is, is design about creativity or connectivity? Good question. Really, really good question. It's almost like asking the question, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around, you know, that kind of a thing. Because 
If you are creating something that doesn't connect with anyone, what is its purpose? Mm. Is it just self-expression? Is it an exercise in personal growth? So, Audience. What you're really suggesting is audience. And another, it just reminds me of another... Another interview you did in the book, there was this notion, I, maybe it was Peter Seville who said it, that it's you design for an audience, not to an audience. There was a, there was a differentiator of design's not for the designer. It's really for the audience. And I think maybe we're... Well, some designers feel that way. Mm. And some designers feel that we are problem solvers, mm. that we are... At the sort of bedrock of our responsibility, we are taking somebody else's message and communicating that in Mm. the simplest, most inspiring manner. There are other designers, people like Brian Collins, for example, who believe that designers should be problem seekers and Mm. that we should go out and look for problems that we can then change the trajectory around or change the atmosphere around. But going back to how to think like a great graphic designer, the reason why I say that it's the worst title of any book ever written is because there is no one way to think in anything. Mm. And what happened was I was really um, – so I wrote the book about 10 years ago. Um, I really wanted to write a book at some point <laughs> in my life. And I had gone to a very dear friend of mine, a man named Stephen Heller, who's written more books about design than anybody on the planet. I think at this count, it's up to about 170. Wow. So I went to him very sheepishly with two ideas over lunch, shared my ideas with him, and he didn't think they were. He thought one was a terrible idea Mm. and one was a good idea that wasn't really possible to do at that time given the type of buy-in I would need to get from others and that it, it wasn't the right timing. And I was down about it, disappointed. Um, but several months later, I got a call from his publisher who had the title of a book that they wanted to be written, that they'd asked Steve to write, and he turned them down. And then re- then re- re- um, recommended me to write the book in his stead. At that point, I was so convinced that this would be the only book deal I would ever get in my life that I should absolutely say yes, even though I thought, how to think like a great graphic designer isn't possible because there is no one way to think. And greatness is often highly original. So the whole book premise is kind of warped. I didn't say that to them, of course, the publishers. What I said was, well... I'm not entirely sure that I'm the right person to write a book called How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer because I don't know exactly the great right way to think necessarily. How about if I interview all of the great graphic designers I can get my hands on and show how they think? And then, Which was genius. Which was just my way of saying yes and as opposed to no but. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And and by the way, see – I love Brian Collins, but we don't need to find problems. They're they're all over the place. Trust me. They are all over the place. Well, it's very interesting. So, yeah. So I I think what's great about the book, and and those of you out there should really uh, find it and read it, um, is that you hear from a number of great graphic designers. And they all have different ways of thinking. They all have different ways of thinking. And I think within your questioning, your – 
you come through as well, which I think is also kind of amazing. So to answer your original mm. question about creativity and connectivity, mm. my sense of this, and I haven't really given it a great deal of thought. It's a great question, and I am mm. now going to be thinking about this for months, maybe years. You can, you can milk this. This is going to be a LinkedIn <laughs> right, post. Exactly. It's going to be a topic of Design Matters podcast. <laughs> exactly. You're going to exactly. turn this into a book. Absolutely. Without a doubt. The Debbie Millman Industries. I will absolutely credit you. is open and running. But what is the point of creativity if you're not going to connect? And what is the need for connectivity if you're not going to share? Right. And and the very notion of sharing is about sharing your creative self, your heart, your deepest and, and most intimate thoughts, mm. which I believe are, are what make a person creative. Yeah. So it's it is is it a chicken and an egg? What comes first, the the creativity or the communication, or the communication and then the creativity? Well, again, I pulled this great quote out uh, of your book from Milton Glaser, and this is his quote: "Work that goes beyond its functional intention and moves us in deep and mysterious ways. That's what we call great work." Yes. So I love this kind of yes. beyond the functional into something that moves us. Something that moves us. Something that shakes us, something that creates a, a, a chemical change in, in your heart and in your brain. Absolutely. And that is what I live for. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Now, I have another hard question for you. Oh, no. And we're going to tie it again to some pieces of your life. But this is, this is about, again, right now. How have all these screens affected how graphic designers work. So I've got to, if I'm a graphic designer today, I've got to understand the iPhone. I've got to understand the iPod. I've got to understand the iPad. Yes, yes. The screenapalooza of the world is now your world as a designer. Like, how does this work now? It's such an important topic for our time because I don't think it's relegated simply to designers or creative people. I think that the use of these devices is profoundly shaping how we interact with each other. Mm. And this is a relatively new thing because if you think about when that first major device came out, six weeks after 9-11, the iPod was released. Steve Jobs handed us that beautiful device with that swirly pin in the front. In between the years of 2001 and 2005, if you look back at the sort of cultural anthropological conversations. Hashtag Debbiepedia. (laughs) It was was all about we are now living in an isolation nation. Mm, Remember that? This was the reason civilization was doomed. Right. Because we were all – and there was a a remarkable article written in December of 2004 in the New York Times by James Katz, who's a professor of communications, I believe, at Rutgers University. I don't know if he's still there. But he wrote about how the iPod was depopulating social space for us and creating this social isolation and anime. When what happened six six months after that – that sort of moment in time, this moment, this line in the sand where the iPod is being blamed for social isolation and anime, MySpace. Mm. We as a human race. I was going to go with Beyonce, but okay, MySpace. <laughs> MySpace came out and was a way for us to connect in that device. Wow. So from isolation nation, six weeks after 9-11, suddenly we have this millennial kumbaya that we're living and in And then now. in the middle of 2005, 
We have the introduction of MySpace, which was the which was originally a data storage site. Right. Within a year, became the most popular website on the planet and had surpassed Google in the number of page views. Hmm. So that's how desperate we were. That was the birth of social media. It was as a response to the isolation we were feeling in this depopulated space and the deep intrinsic nature that humans have with each other. Communication and creativity is now part of this. We're happiest, humans are happiest when our brains are resonating harmoniously with others. Hmm. That's when we, we might think it's the big screen TV, which of course Dan Pink will def, you know, defute and debunk, right. but it's not. It's really about how do we get to feel, how do we create a sense where our brains as humans are harmoniously resonating with others. And that was the original need and intent for us to have this sense of connecting through our devices. Mm. What's happened now, the pendulum has swung all the way to the other degree. So rather than just being connected through these apps and devices and so forth, we're now doing what humans do. We're comparing. Mm. So do we really need to know how many likes we have? Why does it, why does it matter how many friends we have? Right. So what's happening, and, and, and this is the scariest part, whereas the cultural conversation between 2001 and 2004 was isolation nation, social enemy, depopulation, so, social space. Now the big conversation is it's not really about Generation Z. It's mm. about Generation D, the nickname for Generation Z, which is Generation D, D4 depressed mm. because – we are comparing. People can now buy likes. They can buy friends. They mm. can buy this sense of popularity. You know, in when we were teenagers, mm. being popular meant having, like, the coolest pair of Levi's and the best sneakers. Right. Maybe a Lacoste polo shirt. We're going to get into that. Now it's about how popular we can be on YouTube, how many likes we get on Instagram, and it's a whole different way of operating, and people are feeling tremendous despair at not being able to keep up and so, not being able to be as popular. So get, it, I'm sorry. The, the, the stakes are the, – the, the construct hasn't changed, but the stakes are much higher. So but, – but to bring it back to the really horrifically pragmatic, okay. if you've got a design for a, an app – button. Right. So the, the original the, question. No, no, no. It's okay. No, I, I think where you've taken this thing is, is really powerful because um, I want to also start to talk about the death of magazines and how that's hurt design. We're going to get there in a okay. second. Well, in terms of the skill set, yes, it's enormous now. And young designers have to be polymaths. That's a very, very big expectation. You need to be able to design for print. You need to be able to design responsively. You need to be able to understand how to code. These are all requirements. Mm. It's funny. Yesterday, I was um, doing a portfolio review with my students, my undergrad students at the School of Visual Arts, and there was an interesting dichotomy that I noticed. There were some students that were remarkably good at what would be considered conventional print and book design. Remarkably good. Right. And then you looked at some of their app design, some of their motion graphics, and they were appalling. And then I had other students where you looked at their motion graphics and you looked at their um, ability to navigate through the mm. 
various devices and the requirements to do that. And it was effortless. It was seamless. It was beautiful. It was a thing to behold. But then when you look at some of their skills with typography, with kerning, with color theory, and it's not there, we're expecting a lot from young people. And in many ways, I think it would be like asking a pilot to not only fly the plane, but also serve all the food. So I was lamenting the other day about the death of magazines because, and this starts to get into how how you got into this. I mean, graphic designers made magazines, right? Yeah, that was my original aspiration. I wanted to work at Vanity Fair and be sort of a Rosalind Russell-esque designer slash editor slash girl about town. So if you're a rising designer now, like where is the equivalent of that Vanity Fair? Where's David Carson inventing ray gun? I mean, mm, great question. If anybody is interested in looking for great magazines, there is a subscription service called Slack and you get a magazine every quarter sent curated hmm. by the founder, this phenomenal founder of this uh, service, which is proof positive that not only are great magazines being made, but there is also an audience for hmm. these magazines. They are smaller. They're in some ways more niche, but they are there is some of the most exciting work being done. The issue that I think we're seeing is is part of what makes podcasting so popular is that there's an enormous hunger for content, a yeah. word that I loathe, mm-hmm. an, an enormous effort or an enormous um, need for inspiration. Let's use that yeah, word yeah. instead of content, yeah. right? Inspiration. There's not any mass market anymore. Hmm. What we're looking at is quite a number of mutual markets that are all existing at the same time. And people want inspiration, but they just don't want inspiration around the same big mass-marketed, mass-oriented things. Like tribal markets. Yeah. Interesting. And so there is this ability to still do great work, but it tends to need to be self-funded or self-generated, or there needs to be patrons, or there needs to be some sort of um, donations uh, created to be able to support the maker. Right. Interesting. All right. So we're going to go into a little bit of your journey, because you've had a great story. Um, And uh, I like to work backwards. Okay. So uh, not start at the beginning, but just keep slowly going backwards. So there was a certain moment where you were working in the Empire State Building? Yes, the Castle of New York. Okay, so tell us about why you were there and what was cool about it. When I got there, my job was to help grow the business and go out and rainmake. And I did. I went out and I rainmaked. Is that a word? Rainmade. <laughs> Rainmade. Rain See, we always need writers. You exactly. Know? They, they, Absolutely. And editors. They love editors. to marginalize these editors writers, but we need some critical. writers. And um, we started to grow and grow. And we outgrew our offices in 803rd Avenue. Simon Williams, the founder, is a Brit. And I think that foreign people have a different sense of sensibility about what the Empire State Building is. When he told me that he wanted to move into the Empire State Building, I was horrified. (laughs) 
Are you kidding? Why? We're going to go and work in the world's number one tourist location? Are you kidding? I was embarrassed. And But anybody that I told that wasn't a native New Yorker or an American were like, that's so cool. Like Stefan Sagmeister thought it was the most amazing thing on the planet and wanted to sublet space from us. See, I'm, I'm an old school New Yorker, but I get a thrill every time I see the Empire State Building. I think it's one of the most magnificent pieces of design. So I guess I'm a little bit like a, like an Iowa farm boy when I look at the Empire State Building. I, I, I wish our agency was the Empire State Building because to me it's the symbol of – New York at its finest. And that's ultimately what I came to recognize and realize and felt that I was this incredibly lucky person who was working in the castle of New York. And every time I would fly in or out of New York, I'd see my office. And it was an incredible feeling. At the end of our 12 years, we were essentially kicked out because the Empire State Building was no longer renting partial floors to any tenants. They were only renting full floors. And a company from China came in and rented five floors. See, now that's a truly New York story. You're out. The Chinese are taking five floors. We're going to make more money. And I was despondent. I was despondent, Rob. I kept thinking, how could I ever... I'm going to be living in this city trapped with my ex. And I'd have to see this building everywhere. Now, uh, a a last question before our advice section. Um, You're teaching SVA. Yes, I do. I went to SVA. I know. At night. I know. Isn't that amazing? uh, You went to night school. Now you're the CEO. Yeah. Well, you know, Michigan only got me so far. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I had to go to SVA and uh, take those night classes. And here I am. I love SVA. Um, So design education today versus when you were a student. And did you, by the way, I don't even know, did you study design? I didn't study design. You just fell into this thing and became a rock star? Yeah, yeah. Overnight (laughs) success. You know, here I am, my 50s. Overnight Mm. success. Eddie Cantor said, you know, 25 years in one night. Um, (laughs) By the way, we may be the only two people in the world who know Eddie Cantor is today. (laughs) (laughs) You know who else knows? Brian Koppelman knows. Oh, yes. Brian Brian Koppelman, if you're listening to this, we know you know who Eddie Cantor is. Great (laughs) vaudevillian star, stage star. Um, Okay. So I learned how to design that senior year of college working on my student newspaper. And I learned on the job as I started to navigate through my career. Because initially I thought I wanted to be a magazine editor. Mm. But I found in that year at SUNY Albany that I loved designing the content, the editorial, uh, maybe even more than assigning it. Mm. And that I got this tremendous creative joy by creating these things. And ultimately what I've come to realize now all these years later is that what makes me happiest is making things, you know, whether it be making a podcast or making a lesson plan or making a page layout or making a the fragrance. Exactly. Exactly. I love to make things. So that's that's really what I what I love. So but but most in of but, all. but in SVA today, I mean are you teaching theory? Are you teaching making? I mean how has things changed? And again we've got these screens everywhere. Absolutely. Well, I have a no screen policy in my class, which hmm. is 
a really difficult thing to uphold yeah. because it, what what ends up happening is that people are so addicted that they and because I'm addicted too, I mm. know what they're doing. You know, so they can they're trying to sneak it under the table or they're trying to look in their bag for a tissue or you know they're going to the bathroom three times. There's so many ways in which you know because you do it yourself right. that they're trying that they can't even go for two and a half hours without checking digital jonesing. Yeah. Um, so what is – well, I, I went to a liberal arts college and I studied English literature. That was my minor – I mean my major. And my minor was Russian literature in English translation. So I joke now that I have a degree in reading. <laughs> <laughs> so the school that I teach at is a very specialized school and people are coming out with a degree to go into something creative. And I teach I have I run a master's program in branding. And then I also teach an undergraduate class. Every semester I've been teaching undergraduate classes since the early two thousands. Hmm. And so I teach a class that I felt was missing from the curriculum that was also missing missing from most curriculums of schools that I was lecturing at, visiting, or even had gone to. Was, was it was it common sense? It was how to get a job when you graduate. Yeah, so the, that's perfect. Yeah, it's called Differentiate or Die, How yeah. to Get a Job When You Graduate. And it's all about being able to articulate what it is you do, what it is you want, what your benefit to any potential employer is. Because people are like, well, what do, what do you want to do when you graduate? I would like to have a work-life balance. I'm like, no, you don't. Not in your 20s. There is no such thing as work-life balance if you want a career in your 20s. You have to work harder than everybody else. You have to get up earlier. You have to go to bed later. You have to be the first one in, the last one to leave. And then maybe you'll have a career. There is no such thing as work-life balance. By the way, what you just said is going to be my ringtone. <laughs> So so that's what I teach. And I teach students how to create not a portfolio that they're showing at Portfolio Day, but how to create a portfolio that is going to get you a job. Because nobody cares about your kerning. They care about how you think, how you connect ideas, how you can express those ideas, how you can sell a concept, how you present yourself. Who you are and what you represent is as important as your portfolio. And so that's what I teach them. So that's my undergraduate class. And then the branding program is really about teaching a whole series of different disciplines, cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, economics, creativity, brand planning, strategy, research, all of the things that create the end result, which is a brand. Because I believe that the journey is what you need to teach, which is essentially positioning. And the result of all of that is the brand. Wow. Well, usually we ask uh, our guests to give someone one piece of advice. So you know, we say, hey, it's you know whatever day it is. Today is Monday. Uh, usually we do these on Thursdays. So we say, Thursday, what should they do Monday? I feel like the, I'm going to give them a piece of advice. They need to take your class. I mean, I've never <laughs> – I mean, you've just articulated what I think is missing for, you know, in a lot of people right now. They're, they're waiting – uh, I don't know what they're waiting for, but they're not. They're waiting for somebody to find them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like they're like the, what they used to say. Oh, I was in Schraff's eating ice cream, and I was discovered by an agent. Yeah. That ain't gonna happen. If I had to give a young person any piece of advice, one piece of advice, I would ask. Well, I would say two things. First, don't edit what is possible for your life before it's even possible. So I have undergraduates that are like, well, I don't think I could do that because I'm not smart enough, talented enough, mm. rich enough, connected enough. 
If you want it, go for it. And so don't wait for opportunities, but make your opportunities. Ask for opportunities. Mm -hmm. And if you can ask for opportunities, nobody, very few people are ever going to come up and say, here, have this wonderful opportunity just for you. Go, God bless. You have to ask for the opportunities and then work really hard to make the most of those opportunities. Hmm. And did you always, uh, were you always so fearless? I mean, I, like, I don't consider myself fearless, Rob. Really? I consider myself plagued with insecurities <laughs> and self-doubt, maybe even a tinge of self-loathing. Oh, so no, no. not even. No, you, no. You guys, I, you know, because you, you can't even see. When Debbie walks into a room, you light it up. I mean, I, and look what, what, what you've done. You know, you've come from, you know, very humble origins to be, you know, like one of the great design scholars uh, of of our age now. You're making my heart burst. No, it's not bull. No, it's not, not BS. No, it's, it's not. It's I don't, I, 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 I'm trying to, to take it in, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's giving me a sense of real joy to hear this. But it, I have been plagued. I mean, I so just to make, you know, for the listeners that don't know my full backstory, I didn't really sort of come into my own and really feel like I was doing anything really worthwhile that I was proud of, fully, fully proud of, until I was in my mid-40s. And so there were times along the way where I was in true despair about whether I'd be able to make a difference. I had so much longing. I wanted so much with my life, and I didn't know where or how to get it. And so now I feel so grateful and so lucky, but it but, but, wasn't but, but, easy. But I think between insecurity and gratitude, something happened. Yes, I and so, I absolutely will. Yes. What happened? Emphatically. <laughs> um what happened? Therapy happened. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, mean, I know you're a very charming so person. You're very funny. But, but again, there was a moment where you were like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You had your ambitions. And now you're at the other side okay. of it. I know what it is. I know what it Something is. Something happened. Something happened. We call that a disruption. What happened? That's a, that's a great question. What happened? I had this sense that no matter what, I could rely on myself. Whereas before, I was always operating out of insecurity. Think about the book. Mm. I had to say yes to that book because I would never get another opportunity to write a book. And I've done that. I'm going to get married now because I'm never going to have an mm. opportunity to get married again. Mm. I'm going to do this thing because nobody will ever – because this is pure luck and nobody will ever give me this chance again. Mm. And therefore, I have to just do whatever it takes to accomplish anything because I don't feel like I am capable of accomplishing anything left to my own devices or based on my own talent. And I no longer feel that way. I feel like I can rely on my ability to make things and to make things happen in a way that I never have before. Well, I think that's great. I think we're, we're going to leave it there. I think you're an amazing person. And I think you, when people look to understand our world of design – uh, look to Debbie Millman first. Listen to her podcast. Read her books because uh, you will be a smarter person for it. Rob, thank you. And I'm going to suggest perhaps that this is part one and that you give me the great honor of being able to interview you on my podcast because I have a lot of questions I want to ask you. All right. I'm not sure it'll be as good as yours, as, as this one, but yeah, we'll do it. Excellent. All thank right, you. Debbie. Thank you, you so much. You heard it here first. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shiat Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiatny.tumblr.com.